So I want to come back to what we've been working with this retreat. And it's not even so much that we're trying to practice inquiry or trying to practice investigation, but this is just what the mind does. And the trouble is the way our mind normally investigates is it takes conditions and it investigates conditions in order to see if there's something we can get from them. And if it doesn't appear like we're going to get anything from this particular thought or this particular sensation, we tend to dismiss it. Or if we think we're going to get something from it, we tend to grasp it. And if we think it's going to hurt us, we tend to want to get rid of it or deny it or distract ourselves. So investigation or inquiry is happening you know, no matter what. It's just about, you know, understanding the natural force of the mind to investigate and uh, shaping it with wisdom. And by wisdom, we just mean we're shaping our way of investigating, or more generally, we're just shaping the way we are in the world based on what we've learned from being in the world. And the definition of ignorance is relating, interacting with the world, not based, not sort of being fed by our experience. So we tend to just keep circling, doing the same things over and over again, because there's no feedback mechanism, there's no learning. And uh, what traps us in this not learning, of course, is we get deluded by experience. So we've been working with, you know, this dynamic of checking the attitude, because it's without checking the attitude, in a way, we're sort of missing the first step. How's the attitude? Are we? Um, trying to get something. As soon as we're trying to get something, we can't trust our perceptions of the present moment because our perceptions will be skewed by what we want or what we're afraid of. It's sort of interesting, like in order to really assess if there's danger or if there's something of real value, we need at least to some degree a neutral mind. It's only a neutral mind that knows that. I mean, think about how many times we grasped something thinking we wanted it and only to turn out we didn't. Like going through the the buffet line, you know, and we can grasp all kinds of food thinking we want it and then realize we don't want that much food. Or relationships, we've grasped that and then realize, oh, I guess I didn't want to be in a relationship with this person. So we need a neutral, balanced mind, a mind that isn't confused by the things that are happening. So we begin with right view, right attitude, and then we come into the moment. We trust ordinary experience as a way of, in a way, refining attitude, developing or strengthening right attitude. And then as we settle into the ordinariness of the present moment, we have this opportunity to cleanse the mind from its unknowing. That's where we left off last night. 
So we're settling in the experience of the body or we're settling with the breath, settling with sound, settling with movement, walking or whatever, settling with the experience of sipping tea or talking with a friend. And as we're settling in the ordinary experiences, we begin to notice how our mind has is making all kinds of choices automatically, unconsciously. You don't need to pay attention over here. This is really important over here. This is what you want. This is what you don't want. And all of these divisions, all of these opinions and choices, they um, fragment our experience. They break apart the present moment. They confuse the mind. So what we're doing is we're cleansing the mind of its picking and choosing cleansing the mind of repression, of indulging, any kind of fragmentation. We need to cleanse the mind of that until we move in the direction of a more inclusive attention. So our presence in the moment is not about creating boundaries. And of course, the biggest way we create boundaries is we have ideas of good and bad. It's a really strong tendency. And in a way, you know, the sort of uh, primary conditioning of our mind is to generate opinions about whether whatever we're experiencing is good or bad. It's just like churning this out over and over again. This is good. This is bad. This I don't care about. It's in, I'm indifferent, so it doesn't matter. Good, bad, indifferent. So this is the cleansing, is we have to uh, see what the mind does. And we don't have to get rid of that tendency to turn things into good and bad, to pick and choose, to repress, to grasp. We don't have to get rid of it with aversion. We just have to see it. Because when we see that tendency in the mind, then it's get, it gets transformed. It like loses its power. Its power is in not being seen. As soon as we know we're turning things into good and bad, it's like, um, you know, it, it sort of, uh, it's not real anymore. It's like, uh, you know, I'll turn, I've got one of the presets on my radio is a station that has Rush Limbaugh I'm not sure how it got there, but I decided not to change it. And every once in a while, I'll just turn it on. And uh, and I'll notice kind of a strong opinion come up. And uh, and then I'll just, I'll, I'll see that. You know, I'll see how unnecessary it is to have an opinion. Like, why do I need to have a strong opinion or any opinion? Because what I notice is that it hurts. Having a strong opinion hurts. And it doesn't do I no good, at least that I can see, to have a strong opinion of good and bad. And then I can see just as soon as I notice that I have a strong opinion, it's like uh, it's sort of humorous. Not, not that he's humorous, but the fact that I need to have a strong opinion is sort of humorous. It's, it's really light. 
because it's seen as just a habit. It's just an impersonal habit in the mind. One of the things we discover with this cleansing process where we're we're noticing, you know, as we settle into the ordinary, then it just becomes more obvious what the mind is doing. That's the whole point of settling into the ordinary experience of the breath, of the body, sensations, sound, whatever, is it just makes everything clearer. If we're really intimate with the body, we can't help but be intimate with everything else. Even if we practice uh, an exclusive attention with the breath, you know, we were given the instruction just to know the breath, not to pay attention to anything else. So even if we were practicing a more exclusive attention, concentration practice, even so, when the mind gets distracted, that sensitivity is what opens, what sees the distraction. So... The settling process, whether you're doing a more open or inclusive attention or more exclusive attention, we can't help but notice this activity of the mind. And what what it gets noticed as is there's something extra going on, something unnecessary going on in the mind. It's a real, I mean, it can be a little disturbing to see it, but it's not disturbing for long because very quickly we notice that seeing what's extra is the cause for it to fall away. Like as soon as I realize I'm generating an opinion, I stop generating the opinion. It doesn't keep happening. As soon as I notice my mind is complaining, I stop complaining. If I really see it, if I notice that I'm fantasizing about something, it stops when I really see it. So you can just check this out for yourself. Now, we have to really, like if we see it a little bit, it weakens a little bit. You know, we're kind of involved in it, attached to it. We kind of know that we're attached to it. And then that little bit of mindfulness causes it to loosen up a little bit. But if we're, if we're completely aware, oh, it's like this, this is a condition in the mind, or as we've talked about the last couple of nights, it's not self, it's just a condition. Then it really falls away. The, the enchantment really falls away quickly. So in this way then, you know, each time we notice this extra thing in the mind, then instead of using that extra thing for proliferation or distraction, we're really using it for liberation. Because we see it's extra, and then we stop doing what's extra, and then we're, the mind is then, in that moment, liberated from doing that thing that's extra. It's a direct experience of freedom from doing what was extra, unnecessary. You know, generating an opinion about Rush Limbaugh is extra. It doesn't serves nobody. It just is pure suffering. And then seeing it and then stopping doing that is pure freedom. The suffering of 
creating unnecessary, an unnecessary opinion ceases to exist and the mind then experiences the letting go, the freedom of that activity, of that neurotic activity. And it might sound like insignificant, you know, when the mind drops complaining or drops judging or drops envying or drops fantasizing. But the, the kind of definition of an insight is something the mind sees so deeply that it generalizes. So when the mind sees that it's dropped this and experiences the freedom of dropping that, it generalizes that experience and in a moment, for a moment maybe, it drops everything. It realizes, oh, if I can drop this, I can drop everything that's extra. And it does. And so that... So if that's where concentration comes in. If we're not that concentrated, if the mind's sort of scattered and that happens, we notice we're judging or complaining and then it stops, the effect isn't generalized very deeply because the mind isn't very aware of what just happened because it's scattered. We're kind of there, but we're kind of doing three other things with our mind. But on retreat, the mind gets quieter. And so then when it notices that it's judging something, creating an opinion and sees it as just a condition in the mind and that extra thing ceases, that it's sort of seen almost archetypally that everything can be dropped, everything extra can be dropped. This work of cleansing the mind can have a burning feeling because the, you know, as we, first of all, you know, it's not, it's not easy to settle with that balanced presence with what's ordinary. And then even if we can do that, it's like as we begin to see all this extra stuff, you know, this sort of churning going on. So we're with the breath, but we see the mind basically churning on in the ways that it turns on, like judging the breath or wanting the breath to be better or comparing ourselves to somebody else as we're meditating, or comparing this sit to a previous sit, or wishing this sit were better than it is. That um, stuff that's extra, that needs to be cleansed, it has a lot of momentum. So taking, making the effort to see that stuff as extra it's kind of a burning feeling because we're going against the groove. The groove is to get pulled into the complaining, to get pulled into the making of opinions. Because it's just, it's like, uh, it's well greased. So to keep, in a sense, seeing that as extra, seeing the dukkha in it, it's hard work. It's burning because we're resisting this momentum. There's a kind of a threshold that we need to break through. 
And like I said, there's a lot of momentum. And the real hook for this momentum is our aversion to ordinary and our attachment to excitement. So as we're settling with the ordinary, you know, we start to notice this is ordinary. And then because we're relatively quiet, ordinary seems really ordinary. And self-centered dramas seem really exciting. They get amplified because the mind's relatively quiet. So there's, it's kind of a, you know, this is the plane, this is the working ground of our practice where we have to, uh, you know, overcome this attraction to excitement. I want to read a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho. He's talking about this in a, I think, in a funny way and useful way. He says, notice that this is the way nature is. You can't have excitement without boredom. One conditions the other. And that means you have to be patient when the excitement changes into boredom. Sometimes people come to monasteries when they are really inspired. And they say they want to dedicate their entire lives to the Dhamma. But they should watch out. Anyone who is that high is going to be disillusioned and depressed in the not-too-distant future. Meditation is easy when you're fascinated and the teacher inspires you. But then as you meditate, it becomes monotonous and boring. At first you might try to arrange your life in a way that makes more time for meditation. But later you find yourself arranging things so that you have less time. Of course, there are always important things to do in life. But what has really happened is that meditation, (coughs) which was once fascinating, has become boring. And we want to turn away from anything that's boring. So the whole process, you know, when we're first learning, it's exciting. And it's exciting for the self to sort of be on this adventure, to be learning meditation, to be learning about the mind. But then when we really start seeing the choice between self-centered drama, the stuff that I've been calling extra, and things as they are, the disenchanted, dispassionate way of seeing the mind and body, the experience of the present moment, we almost always choose the self-centered dramas. Until we've been around the block enough times and we know, you know, in our bones that excitement is limited, self-centered dramas are limited. He goes on a little later, he says, it's only if you're willing to endure through despair and disillusionment that you can really know. If you delude yourself into thinking, I don't believe in this anymore, if you go off and follow some other interesting method or religion, you have to repeat the same cycle over and over. You'll just be going from one guru to the next, from one type of meditation to another. Life can be interesting and inspiring. You can also, you can be very enthusiastic. And then what happens? It becomes boring and dreary. But only for a while. (laughs) Because after a while of opening to the ordinary and doing this cleansing process of seeing what's extra, making, taking allegiance with what's ordinary, not the self-centered dramas. Keep orienting towards what's ordinary. And the most ordinary thing in the world is you know, what we call the unconditioned, which is that pure, simple knowing. 
just seeing things as they are. That dispassionate, disenchanted, clear seeing. When we see in that way, it's really boring. But we learn, we discover, it's really peaceful. It's really safe. It's, it has a, it, the experience of wholeness, fullness, everything included, no separation. And this really leads us to this uh, last part of this series of talks, which is really on noticing space or noticing stillness or what we call sometimes the unconditioned. And here's Ajahn Sumedho again. In Buddhist meditation, you are moving toward what is most ordinary, the unconditioned. Conditions are extraordinary. They can be exciting, sometimes fantastic phenomena. But peace of mind, the unconditioned, the silence of it, is so ordinary that no one ever notices. It's there all the time, but we don't even know it because we're so fascinated by the miraculous and the extraordinary, by the miraculous and the extraordinary, by transitory things that stimulate and depress. We get caught up in the way things seem to be and we forget. In meditation, we're going back to the peace that is in the position of knowing. Then the world is understood for what it is, and we are no longer deluded by it. We can live and act in the world without being overwhelmed by the conditions we experience. Now sometimes, you know, people say, well, I don't, I don't want that kind of peace. I want the excitement. And it's really okay. It's, there's no reason somebody has to choose peace or even believe that there is peace here. So it's, it's important that what motivates us to explore this is a kind of disillusionment uh, or a natural dispassion that's arising in terms of our relationship to the conditions. I mean, how many times have we been happy? How many times have we been sad? How many times have we had excitement and boredom and everything in between? You know, it starts to creep in how exhausting it is to have, you know, to find an exciting sense experience. Sometime, I think in December, when and I started, uh, we joined Netflix. Um, mostly we just downloaded things directly from the library online. And I, at first, it was relatively easy to find something reasonable to watch, you know, that was well-made and interesting. And then it was like harder and harder to find anything that, you know, we would tolerate as a show. And it, it just, it was just, now we canceled it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just sort of emblematic of so many things in life that, uh, you know, we're always looking for the next thing. And, you know, one of the, the reasons we like having friends is so we can find out what they're doing. 
because it might be something we want to do. Have you noticed that? Like you, someone is into something or read a certain book or done a certain activity and then the first thing that comes to mind isn't like appreciating their happiness. It's, I wonder if I'd like to do that. Maybe I should do that. Can I do that? <laughs> I want to share another quote from Ajahn Sumedho where he's really talking about how this, this uh, stillness of mind or space of mind naturally arises from just doing this work of opening to what's ordinary and cleansing the mind of what's extra. Now, what is the unconditioned? You can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, hear it, or think it. Yet it's where all conditions merge. It's not a sense. It is peace. It doesn't arise or pass away, begin or end. It's from there that all conditions arise. When you're bringing things up into consciousness and allowing them to cease, they cease in the unconditioned. The goal then is to recognize and to know conditions as conditions and the unconditioned as the unconditioned. The goal is to be that knowing. In other words, the goal is to be mindful. It's not just a belief. It's something you have to do for yourself. No one can do it for you. And Buddhism is a vehicle, a convention to help you break through the delusions and find release from the mortal condition you realize from the mortal condition as you realize the unconditioned, the deathless state. So that's how I'd like to spend the, the rest of the evening is kind of reflecting on the experience of space and how to trust it. And that's really the last two instructions. So we have checking the attitude, opening to what's ordinary, cleansing the mind of its tendency to repress things, to stay unconscious of things, cleansing the mind of its tendency to grasp things, to kind of make things more than, the, than what they are. So cleansing the mind of all of its habits of manipulation, of struggling. And then it's that work of opening to what's ordinary and cleansing the mind of what's extra unavoidably leads to the intuition, the experience of space or stillness or silence or the unconditioned, that pure knowing. And then we practice not just awakening to it, but trusting it, seeing it as like our real home or our true refuge. So in the Buddhist formulation of the three refuges, this is the Buddha. The Buddha isn't this historic person. The Buddha we take refuge in is this refuge of emptiness, the emptiness of what's conditioned. It's not a nihilistic emptiness. It's just not what can be known or seen or touched or thought. It's not that. It's like, uh, you know, that game we used to do. I, I went to college in the 70s and I was a resident advisor and I guess, I don't know why they thought this would help us be resident advisors, but they got us all together before the other students came and we'd go to this camp and do all these sort of interpersonal, interrelating things. And one thing is, you know, 
somebody would be blindfolded and stand on a stump of a tree that's maybe three feet up or two feet up, and they'd fall back, and everyone else was supposed to catch them, you know. <laughs> but they, so I guess it's like trust. But it's a little bit like that with the unconditioned. It's like we're used to trusting our six senses, you know, our thinking and our seeing and our hearing and our smelling. And then the unconditioned is not that. So it's like the mind releases its fixation on the conditions, on what is seen, what is heard, what is thought. It releases its grip and it's like falling back into the unconditioned, not that stuff. And we don't know what it is until the mind releases its grip. And the way the mind releases its grip is this general, usually, not always, but usually it's this gradual process of trusting what's ordinary, really trusting what's ordinary. And as you trust what's ordinary, doing the necessary work of cleansing the mind of its resistance to trusting what's ordinary. So it's funny how we use the conditions, because that's what's ordinary. You know, we just, the breath is a condition, but we use it. We use the ordinariness of it, or the neutrality of it. It's not exciting, it's not charged. And then that sort of exposes our hunger for excitement, for something that's charged, for something we like or dislike. And then we can cleanse it. We keep trusting the ordinary, trusting the ordinary, trusting the ordinary. Even, even uh, like uh, as we get calm, as we get happy, that often, especially, you know, a more pervasive kind of happiness when you're feeling just content, that's also a really good thing to trust. Because when contentment isn't about anything in particular, it isn't long before we want to, like, spice it up a little bit. Like, it can be so nice to get home after a retreat, for example, or after a busy week at work, and you go home, and initially, if you're just so happy just to sit on the couch, just to put your feet up, just to, you know, not have anything to do, for how long? You know, and then, it's like, then you need to do something with that contentment. you got to spice it up. So then you get that chance to see that, oh, this can be, this is extra. You know, I'm already feeling content. I don't need to spice this up. There's already peacefulness, breathing in, breathing out. I don't need to plan my next retreat, which is, you know, sometimes what we do. So it's a, it's a relatively simple movement from what's ordinary to space. I mean, this is a thing, objects that are neutral are really good objects for meditation because they, uh, they sort of mimic the empty space or the empty silence or stillness of the mind. Heart, our true refuge. 
because our mind isn't used to looking and being attentive to ordinary objects, and even more so, it's not used to noticing space. I mean, even you can use the image of the space here in the room or the space of Holy Spirit, this whole area. You know, we don't notice it. It doesn't occur to us that there's space in the room. Our mind is fixated on the objects that are in the room. But we can train ourselves to get interested in the space. In fact, that's a very useful technique. You know, you could just, for the rest of the evening, just have a sense of space. This is why hearing can be, for some people, a really useful uh, primary object for meditation. Because when you send your sense of hearing out in all directions, it becomes easier to intuit space, like a three-dimensional space. And even though there's a sense that the sounds aren't... um, like uh, they're happening here, you know, in our mind, so to speak. But there's all this space. And we see the difference between the space and the sounds. Like the space is one thing and the sounds are another. They're not the same thing. So this is what we can do with, uh, you know, just working with ordinary experience and then turning our attention to the space itself. Ajahn Sumedho says, um, however, even though the space does not attract our attention, we can become, we can be fully aware of it, and we can become aware of it when we are no longer absorbing into the objects in the room. When we reflect on the space in the room, we feel a sense of calm, because all the space is the same. The space around you and the space around me is no different. It's not mine. I can't say this space belongs to me. That space belongs to you. Space is always present. It makes, us, it, makes it possible for us to be together, contained within a room, in a space that is limited by walls. Space is also outside of the room. It contains the whole building, the whole world. So space is not bound by objects in any way. It is not bound by anything. If we wish, we can view space as limited in a room, but really, space is unlimited. So the the trick to noticing the silence or the space of the present moment is to get really interested in what's ordinary not be confused by what seems exciting and personal. Ordinary is really the vehicle into the deeper insights. Because, and this is really counterintuitive, because a lot of times when we think about spiritual practice, and we read about you know people's uh, interesting experiences, concentration experiences, or mystical experiences, it sounds very personal. It sounds very special, like something very special happened to that person. But the actual vehicle or the means to awakening is very ordinary. It's like seeing something 
that's very impersonal. It's going beyond what's personal. And so, uh, you know, it's, and this is like we can learn to trust this, like, it's exactly opposite what our conditioned mind wants to do. It's like, if you can set your spiritual clock by that principle, it's not what you want to do. <laughs> Opening to the ordinary is not what we want to do. We want to worry about what's dangerous, what might happen that's bad, or what we did that was bad, or we want to think about what's good and what might happen. But we don't want to relax with real presence, real interest in what's ordinary. Because it's, it's a very profound insult to the sense of self, to our established view to pay attention, to be fully devoted to what's ordinary. Until we, like I mentioned earlier, until we um, start to get a sense of the peacefulness of space, of the silence of mind, and really acquire a taste. It's like uh, once we get the pervasiveness of our habits to agitate and really get how that's extra, doesn't help, sort of an opposite desire begins to arise, a desire, really a desire we can trust for peace or for cessation, the cessation of everything that's extra. Let me just read a couple more things here. So Ajahn Sumedho in this chapter, he mentions a couple ways to uh, that you can begin to create opportunities for uh, um, sort of create opportunities that increase the probability of understanding this the unconditioned or what's not conditioned. In one is he, he often, uh, it's kind of controversial, but he often recommends people listen to that background sound. So not just listening to distinct sounds, like the sound of the crickets or the sound of birds or the sound of traffic, but then tuning into the sound that's sort of the background sound, like a hum. Because in a way, that's the ultimate ordinary experience. It doesn't change. It's there all the time. For some people who can perceive that sound, that sort of hum or buzz, it's different for different people. And so that's one way. The other way is to really tune into how conditions are coming and going and to even play with that. So if you find your mind is worrying, you know, it's, it's attentive to this exciting worry, you know, that seems personal, seems important. And so we're worrying and we're having the thought, oh, when I get home on Tuesday, I have to do this. And then what he recommends is that consciously repeat the thought, having the thought, when I get home on Tuesday, I have to do this. But instead of fixating on the content, we're noticing that as the thought happens, it ceases. Like Ajahn Sumedho said, moments ago when I was reading, all conditions cease into the unconditioned. They're born 
out of the unconditioned and they cease into the unconditioned. So if you want to know what the unconditioned is, you can get really interested from where conditions arise. Like where does the sound of the bird arise? No. Conventionally speaking, I'd say, well, it arose, you know, in that beak over there or something like that. But in our actual experience, that's just a story that there's a beak and, and that there's an over there, right? Those are just concepts. The actual experience is that sound came out of nowhere or came out of the unconditioned. And then the sound ends. Well, when it ends, where does it go? Or it goes back to the unconditioned. This is like a big deal at the time of the Buddha because everyone wanted to know what happens to the Buddha when he dies. Because, uh, you know, in the Buddha, in the, you know, system of thought at the time, you know, there was rebirth. You took rebirth. But you can only take rebirth if there's sort of neurotic, if there's sort of... Uh, extra stuff, you know, what I've been calling extra, the sort of um, mental fabrications, delusions about oneself, about self. And evidently the Buddha, someone who's fully awakened, doesn't have that. So the question is, where does the Buddha go when he dies? And what the Buddha said is he used the image of a fire. And he says, if you had a fire, you know, and eventually it burned itself out, and somebody asked you, well, where did that fire go? You wouldn't be able to really answer where that fire, where did that fire go? It's just, what you could say is the fuel that was the cause for the fire ceased to be, right? And that's what the Buddha would say. The fuel that was the cause for all this extra stuff, the self-centered drama stuff, ceased to exist. So... The Buddha, you know, it doesn't make sense to say he doesn't exist, and it doesn't make sense to say he does continue to exist at death. So he would generally not answer the question. And he would use that image if someone pressed him. It's like a fire going on. That's why they use the word Nibbana. Nibbana means cessation. It's the same word, evidently, at the time. Nirvana, Nibbana, uh, is the same word that was used Conventionally, it was just an ordinary word for a fire going out. We make it this kind of, you know, mystical experience, but it's it's really the cessation to the unconditioned, if that's what's left, is the unconditioned. And it's this, you know, this is the... Um, kind of taking refuge in this is what allows us not to be caught in aversion and desire or craving. It's like another way to say it, uh, to sort of point to the unconditioned is it's that which isn't confused by aversion and craving. So when aversion arises in my mind or your mind or craving arises, normally it agitates the mind because we identify with that condition. But when aversion arises in the mind or desire arises in the mind, 
and there's no agitation, no confusion. It's there, but there's no confusion there. Then that means that wisdom is knowing, the unconditioned is knowing desire and wisdom. I mean, desire and aversion. So that's, you don't want to, I think the idea is that we don't want to make it something far off, but just understand that you can't really see desire truly. You can't really see aversion and still be caught in the world of conditions. Because if we're caught in the world of conditions, then desire is significant. It has meaning. What takes the meaning, the weight, the punch out of desire and aversion? What is that that takes it out? Because aren't there moments when we're not confused by desire and aversion? At least to some degree, right? When we see it, but it's like it doesn't have meaning anymore. Well, what is it? What is the refuge that allows us not to be confused by that? What is it that, you know, what is that perspective? Now, I really want you to investigate this mode of knowing so that you can begin to see how to let go of things rather than just have the idea that you should let go of things. You might come away from the Buddhist teaching with the idea but may find that you can't do it very easily. You might think, oh no, I can't let go of things. This type of judgment is another ego problem that you can create. Only others can let go, but I can't let go. I should let go, because Venerable Sumedho and everybody should let go. That judgment is another manifestation of I am, isn't it? And it is just a thought, a mental condition that exists temporarily within the spaciousness of the mind. Let me, I just want to read one more thing here. Most of our suffering comes from habitual thinking. If we try to stop it out of aversion to thinking, we can't. We just go on and on and on. So the important thing is not to get rid of thought, but to understand it. And we do this by concentrating on the space in the mind rather than on the thoughts. Our mind tends to get caught up with thoughts of attraction or aversion to objects, but the space around those thoughts is not attractive or repulsive. The space around an attractive thought and uh, a repulsive thought is not different, is it? Concentrating on the space between thoughts, we become less caught up in our preferences concerning the thoughts. So if you find in the, that an obsessive thought of guilt, self-pity, passion keeps coming up, then work with it in this way. <coughs> Deliberately think it, really bring it up as a conscious state, and notice the space around it. And this is like beginning to distinguish between the conditioned and the unconditioned. The conditioned is the mind, in a sense, attached or fixated, identified with the condition, lost into the condition. And the unconditioned is understanding that the condition is just a condition. And it, the unconditioned diffuses, it takes the charge out of the conditioned. So, Given that as human beings we're going to live in the conditioned world, that's where we live, right? We live with experience. 
the five physical senses and thoughts and emotions. So how can we be skillful in this conditioned world? Waking up, realizing the unconditioned is the only way to live in this world in a skillful, useful, happy way. It's what allows us to be a happy human being. Without understanding the unconditioned, we are completely trapped by the ups and downs of the conditioned realm. Things are good, things are bad. And literally, the sense of self, of who we are, it rides that roller coaster. You know, and some of us, our roller coaster has been going up for a long time. And we can forget <laughs> that nothing goes up forever, you know. And other people, maybe even more fortunate in some ways, their roller coaster goes up a lot, up and down a lot, you know. So they don't, they're not sort of deluded by the nice ride they've been having. But no matter the kind of roller coaster we're on, it is stressful to be identified with the ups and downs. Even if we have just a good ride, it's even stressful to be identified with how good our life has been, to be dependent on what a good life we're having. Even that is stressful, although it tends not to you know, wake us up, that kind of stress. It's kind of a mild stress. You can think of you know, the lucky people that you imagine who are good-looking and intelligent and everything happens right for them. They live in the right places and they have the right friends and the right partner and the right this and the right that. But if we were that person and we looked carefully, we would notice that being identified with our good ride is stressful. It's a real weight in the heart. And that we'd be even happier uh, relating from the unconditioned than we would from the conditioned realm, being attached to the conditions. So I'll just end by sharing one more teaching here from Ajahn Sumedho. It just, I think, speaks to our predicament, our existential restlessness. He says, another thing to notice is the compulsive sense of having to do something, having to get or attain something, having to get rid of your defilements. When you're trusting in your real home, then you can have perspective on this conditioning of emotions, of the emotions. We come from very competitive, goal-oriented societies. We are very much programmed always to feel that there is something that we have to do, have to get. We are always lacking something and we've got to find out what it is. Or we have to get rid of something, our weaknesses, faults, bad habits. Notice that this is just an attitude that arises and ceases. It's a competitive world, the world of self. We can always see ourselves in terms of what's wrong with us. There are always so many flaws and inadequacies. There is no perfect personality that I've ever noticed. Personalities, personality is all over the place. Some of it is all right, some of it is really wacky. There is no personality that you can take refuge in. You are never going to make yourself into a perfect personality. So when you judge yourself, you find so many problems, inadequacies, flaws and weaknesses. Maybe you're comparing yourself to some ideal person, 
some unselfish superlative personality. That which is aware of personality is not personal. You can become aware of the personal as a mental object. These personality conditions arise and cease. You find yourself suddenly feeling very insecure or acting very childish because the conditions for that personality have arisen. Some of you know this experience, like if you've been single for a while or haven't dated or gone out with someone new for a while, and then for whatever reason that happens. And you get that chance to see those sort of conditioned parts of your personality in relationship that you you haven't seen in a while. And it can be so disturbing to see that (laughs) because we take those, we take the aspects of our personality very personally, right? Just think how easy it is for shame to arise when we do something stupid or embarrassing. You know, like we're laughing and snot comes out of our nose. <laughs> you know, and we're in a kind of a dignified crowd. It can be, it can be really hurtful. But why should that be? It's hurtful because we have an idea, and that doesn't fit the idea. So. The idea is to take the personality, to see the personality, to relate to the personality in this impersonal way. And Ajahn Sumedho has this great example he goes on to talk about here where, you know, when he was 55 years old, so he had been a monk for a long time, 25 years, I guess, something like that, and the abbot of a big monastery in England at that time, now he's in his 70s, so that was just a while ago. He went home to take care of his mom and dad. I think one of them was really sick. And... uh, in Seattle where he was raised, in the little house where he had spent some of his time in his youth. And there he was, you know, fully developed (laughs) Buddhist practitioner or at least someone along the way, well along the way in terms of his practice. And uh, there in that small house, you know, and of course the personality is a natural thing. The personality doesn't become liberated. Right? The personality is like a beast. The beast is the beast. And so a beast acts according to conditions. So there, with his parents, treating him like a ch- uh, their son. You know, that's what parents do. They treat us like children because in their eyes, that's what we are. And, you know, in those conditions, all kinds of old patterns started to come up with him. Now, the way enlightenment manifests is how quickly does one realize that those personality attributes that are arising are not self. They're just what they are. They're just patterns that are being known and not self. They're things that arise out of the unconditioned and cease in the unconditioned. And we don't have to be our personality. We don't have to be our life. We don't have to be anything, any conditioned thing. And that's the real freedom in the practice, not to have to be anything, which allows us to be everything, in a sense. I know it sounds like some New Age cliché, but there's some real truth to that. It's like, um, it's not a nihilistic realization that we're nothing. It's really in being none of these conditions, there's a feeling of wholeness or completeness that... uh, it's really beautiful, and once you get a little taste of it, it's uh, 
it make the practice really begins to make sense, really understand why we would come on a retreat and spend four days opening to what's ordinary, cleansing the mind of everything that is exciting and intoxicating, and really learning to rest more fully in simplicity and stillness and silence in the way things are. So we'll just take a, a minute and let go of the words and take a couple breaths. Resting in the ordinariness of the moment, in the knowing. Appreciating peace. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we're walking practice now.